electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everyone. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Big beats, small moves. What the lackluster reaction to strong earnings so far this season tells us about the market and whether we're in a holding pattern till the election. Reading the charts, there's been lots of talk about the rotation to value lately, but is it a true shift? We'll get some technical answers. And the consumer's outlook on the economy is getting dimmer. Why and what that historically means for stocks, it's all ahead. But first, let's get the state of play in markets this hour. Seema Modi has more on that for us. Seema? Good afternoon, Kelly. Earnings continue to dominate the discussion. Uh, let's take a look at where markets stand right now. The Dow is trading lower. Session high was up 22. The low was down 174, currently down about 148. The S&P 500, you can see, just hugging the flat line right now, uh, down three points on the day. However, some st- uh, pockets of strength within technology, Twitter, trading at its highest level since 2015. Alibaba, meanwhile, on track for its seventh straight month of gains and also notching a fresh all-time high today, up about 3%. And take a look at shares of Microsoft ahead of its earnings report after the bell. You can see the stock up just about 1.5%. This is the first big tech company to report. The other one's coming out on Thursday. Let's also take a look at Bitcoin. Now, switching gears here, especially after PayPal's new features allowing U.S. users to buy, sell, and hold cryptocurrencies, you're seeing Bitcoin uh, outperform here, now trading at its highest level since 2018 and up 5% on the day. Kelly, back to you. Seema, thank you very much. Meantime, orders for durable goods increased for a fifth straight month in September, growing by about 2% and beating Wall Street expectations. Sounds good, but the industrial sector shrugging it off and some key movers are lower on earnings today. Caterpillar is down after reporting a 54% annual drop in profit in the third quarter. Its equipment sales declined across all regions and segments. The shares are down nearly 4% right now. 3M beat on expectations on the top and bottom line thanks to strong personal safety equipment sales. Still, shares are down about 2% right now. For more on these moves, I'm joined by CNBC Senior Markets commentator Michael Santoli. You know, Mike, finally, some not even finally, we continue to get good news uh, out of the industrial sector in terms of what's going on with manufacturing here. But what do you think is going on with the stocks? Uh, to some degree, that improvement was priced in. Industrials actually had a pretty decent comeback relative to the market in the last few months. Uh, also, third quarter earnings I think in general, the market is essentially saying these are stale numbers, uh, meaning that analysts were not rigorous about trying to raise forecasts that much before we got here. So the beats were a little bit baked in. Uh, And then you just have the macro environment at the moment, too. I think the big question currently is not so much have we had a boom in stuff, in heavy goods like durable goods. Yes, we have, and it's ongoing. Uh, The question is, does it carry forward? Treasury yields backing off today suggest the macro sentiment is just a little bit softer When it comes to all this, also within the consumer confidence data, there was a little bit of a downshift in intentions for buying a a new car. uh, And that's something also that has been a problem to the industrial economy. Yeah, we're going to dig into that report in a little bit as well. And, you know, it's interesting because there's this whole handoff between this massive destocking that we've seen. We've talked about the ports being crazy busy, you know, all of that activity and, you know, kind of whether that can hand off now to a more sustainable expansion. Are people in doubt of that? And, and with industrials still down four or five percent on the year, 
are, you know, at what point we would have to see the data, I imagine, turn a lot more positive to start seeing the rotation and that leadership come back uh, to the fore. Yeah, that rotation has been, you know, it looks like it's been in train for a while. It looks like it's had a couple of false starts. I still think it's moving in the correct direction. In other words, there's a cyclical tone to the market in the last few months. And it also, it's driven globally. This isn't really just a, about the U.S. manufacturing sector, Caterpillar cited uh, China demand. But those stocks, the, you know, the valuations sort of reflect some of that anyway. The industrial sector, the S&P, trades at like 24 times forward earnings already. So it's already gotten to that point where it's looking across the valley of these earnings, assuming that they're going to spring back pretty hard. You know, one other good sign that we had lately was the fact that Dow transports are breaking out. You know, classic leading indicator, you think, okay, first go the transports, then comes, you know, the rest of the blue chips and that, and that sort of thing. But there's nothing normal about this recovery, I don't think. Um, how much should we look to the transports to kind of get back in the driver's seat and tell us whether that kind of whole rotation is going to be on track? It's better to have them strong than not, uh, you know, along with semiconductors, for example, doing really well. Those are the, the kind of cyclical growth drivers. A lot of what transports have been telling us, though, is um, there's an e-commerce element to it. Uh, there's definitely a moving things around this country uh, type piece of it, as opposed to, you know, industrial goods. There is a commodity uh, comeback coming, too. So I think it's a positive, but it's not a get out of jail free card for the, you know, for the economy or the markets. If, in fact, we do have uh, another little bout of slowdown, whether it because uh, of lack of, a, of an extra fiscal stimulus or for whatever other reason, it does seem as if uh, you want to see them trade higher but, uh, but you can't necessarily bake in that, you know, we're going to get what they're indicating. Yeah, no, down about a percent or so today. Uh, Mike, appreciate it as always. Thank oh. you, sir. Michael Santoli talking us through these markets. And stocks are taking a big pause after yesterday's big sell-off that saw the Dow and S&P post their worst day in over a month. Are we in a holding pattern until the election? Joining me now to talk more about that, Paul Christopher is head of global strategy at Wells Fargo Investment Institute, and Andrea Romhild is investment manager at Aware Asset Management. Welcome, guys. So, Paul, I mean, what do you do with stocks here? How much of the weakness that we've seen lately is COVID-related? How much could be about election uh, uncertainty? What do you think? Yeah, good questions. COVID, yes. Elections, yes. And Mike mentioned the macro picture, where quite a lot of that V. It has already been priced in, especially when you think about people buying durable goods. What needs to happen now is that services become a more sustainable driver of this recovery. That remains an open question along with the others because of COVID. And you'd be a seller of the industrials here, Paul? Oh, well, we're, we're, uh, look, we're going to focus right now on two things. One is that a lot of investors have cash. A lot of our clients still have cash. And we still see good opportunities in the tech space and the tech-related space. So IT, communication services, healthcare, and consumer discretionary, we think those are places that we want to be heavily invested in. And moving cash in slowly on an incremental basis, dollar cost averaging here, we're starting to see, as you alluded to earlier, some signs of a reflation trade. But we've already also seen several false dawns for reflation in May and into June, then again in August. Then again in September, uh, and, and there's just so many uncertainties out there right now. Our best advice is focus on tech. Don't be underweight emerging markets. Don't be underweight industrials here. Don't be underweight materials uh, You know, for very long. Uh, what you want to do is be looking for a way to get up to neutral there. And when that move shows itself sustainable, it's going to have some legs to it. We think there will be time for investors to get in. 
Andrea, do you have the same point of view, especially on the credit side? You know, are, is there anywhere where you see and feel a lot of conviction right now, or would you say it's better to wait and see what happens uh, over the next couple weeks and months? Sure, we we definitely still like the stay-at-home trade. Um, I think that's along the lines of many people out there right now, as we saw the sell-off yesterday and a pullback. You know, that COVID's still sitting around. We're going to continue to have, you know, a, a that trade on, you know, and until really COVID's gone, you're going to have continued to have this bumpy ride. We also really like the triple B space in the credit market. Um, we see a lot of value there, uh, especially compared to the A's. That part of the curve is really tight. Um, we like the triple B's. Uh, obviously, not all are traded equally, but we like, you know, the telecom space um, for various areas that goes along with the stay at home and the activity that. We like the um, large money center bank so that they are specialized and the diversity of revenue that they um, offer and the global diversification as well. Yeah. And just to make sure everybody caught that, you guys like the large money center bank, some of the large names in retail, telecom. You think it's too early for travel and leisure. Appreciate it, guys. A lot's going to come at us over the next few days with earnings here and then with the election and so much more. Paul Christopher, Andrea Romhill, appreciate your thoughts on these markets in the meantime. Let's turn to Rick Santelli. We have a news alert out of the bond market. Two-year notes went up for auction. Where are we, Rick? You know, before we even get to that, you know, 54 billion in two-year notes. These numbers are getting huge. This 257 package this week, 162 billion. These are record-sized numbers. The auction didn't go that well. I gave it a C minus, so a bit below average. So it was 54 billion, record amount of two years. The yield, 0.151. Basically, this auction had a when-issue market that traded between 15 and 14 and a half basis points. That's it. So it priced a little bit out of the range, which is really small, but in the context of a two-year, which is kind of a placeholder for your money, I have to take off for that. Everything was a little bit below average, bid to cover 2.41. Uh, we, we did okay on indirects, and the directs were actually the best since June, but there was nothing inspiring about this auction. We'll have fives and sevens. Maybe the most important thing to think about is if this is standing in place, you put your two-year to be in a good, solid credit, you're not going to get a lot of volatility. In the last couple sessions, we've seen more buying than selling. I was a bit surprised the auction didn't go a little bit better. Kelly, back to you. Rick, one quick follow-up. We're back to just around 0.75%, a little above that on the 10-year. What do you see in the charts? I mean, did we kind of miss a, a breakout opportunity there? You know, I think uh, the 0.86 high-yield close that we had several sessions ago is going to be it, depending on the volatility we get for the election. And, uh, you know, not to be political here, but I really think tax policy and all that is going to lead the charge on how investors respond. So if the current administration wins, I would think yields would have a chance to go up. Other than that, I think we've seen the high yield for a while. Yeah, it feels like it. Rick, appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Rick Santelli with the auction results and thoughts yeah. on the bond yield space for us. Let's turn now to the deal of the day, a mammoth move in the semiconductor space. AMD buying Xilinx in a $35 billion all-stock deal. AMD shares are lower by nearly 5% right now, while Xilinx is surging about 8%. And this acquisition comes at a moment of weakness for rival Intel, just days after the chip giant posted weak earnings and affirmed a key chip delay. For more on what it all means for investors, let's bring in Matt Ramsey. He's managing director and senior research analyst at Cowan. Matt, it's great to have you. What should Intel do now? Uh, thank you very much, Kelly. Good afternoon, and thanks for having me. Um, I think Intel, from, from their side, 
Um, obviously, AMD making the move for Xilinx, NVIDIA being aggressive in what they've done with the Mellanox acquisition and now trying to buy um, IP provider ARM Holdings. I think there's there's chips being moved around the table here, and I think Intel really needs to decide, A, are they going to continue to manufacture their own silicon and how much, and B, really double down on investments to get their manufacturing fixed, because I'm of the belief that Intel, first and foremost, is a manufacturing company, and trying to uh, compete with companies like AMD and NVIDIA that are well aligned with TSMC is just difficult when your manufacturing footprint is not sound. So. I don't think it changes the urgency right. to uh, to fix things from an Intel perspective, but it's you know, the pressure is ratcheting up. Yeah, so AMD and NVIDIA have pursued this kind of approach where they go to other manufacturers, Taiwan Semi, uh, notably in AMD's case. A lot of people are speculating over whether Intel should do the same thing, but like you said, you think of them as fundamentally a manufacturing company. And they're much bigger. I mean, how realistic is it for them to adopt the same approach? And if they don't, should investors, you know, think twice? I mean, they're probably thinking twice now. Should they think for a third time about whether they really want to own these shares? Yeah, I think the, the, the Intel stock performance over the last couple of years would indicate that they're already thinking twice. I mean, to me, I want to uh, pivot a little bit and look at this transaction more from what it does for, for AMD and Xilinx put together to compete with Intel. More customized solutions for data center um, combines this company to be potentially $20 billion in revenue, mid-50s gross margin, and, and a 30% operating margin business that I think importantly, CEO Lisa Thu from AMD this morning reiterated that they think they can grow this combined business at 20% a year, and all of those businesses that they would grow would be things that they would compete directly against Intel for. So um, there's no change in the urgency, as I say, on the Intel side, but this is a big move uh, by another competitor that, that strengthen it itself with the partnership with TSMC over the long term. It's remarkable what Lisa Sue has done. I think she's been there since about 2013 at the helm of AMD, Matt. I mean, would you put her up there? It's not your sector, but with Satya Nadella at Microsoft. Or I, in terms of the ranks of great CEOs, she's got to be at the tippy top right now. No, I, I would certainly agree. Um, I have the utmost respect for Lisa. Um, under her leadership, this company has gone from $2 billion in market cap with $2.5 billion in net debt to, to now um, approaching $100 billion market cap and have grown revenue 25% a year, gross profit by 35% a year, and operating profit by 125% a year. Those are kickers over the last five years. And, and you can tell by the deepening of their strategic partnerships with big cloud companies, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, um, and also with the PC revenue. I mean, the PC revenue that they printed today in their results was up over 100% year-over-year in notebooks. Obviously, the market is strong, but that, wow. that's a position that Intel has held for a very long time. And I think the technical leadership that Lisa and Mark Papermaster and others at AMD have, have demonstrated, uh, you don't win that share off of Intel easily. And they've had to struggle their way up, and it's all because of the leadership. Yeah. Matt, thanks for joining me today. I know you're sticking with AMD, but your thoughts and, and those numbers on kind of what she's accomplished are just amazing. So we appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Matt Ramsey oh, with Common. Let's turn now to the number of COVID cases continuing to rise across the country. The timing of a vaccine is becoming more and more important, and there's been a lot of news on that front, not all positive, over the past 48 hours. There's also a lot of speculation over what's going on with current vaccine frontrunner Pfizer. Meg Terrell just spoke with Pfizer's CEO, and she's got more developments for us. Meg? 
Hey, Kelly. Well, there was a hope that perhaps when Pfizer announced its earnings results this morning, it may also announce some data from its phase three trial on its COVID-19 vaccine. Well, that was not the case. And there's some disappointment around that. Uh, but I did talk with Albert Borla, the CEO of Pfizer, to get some clarity on the kinds of timelines they're looking at. Now, he's been saying end of October uh, for months, essentially, is when they could get a sense of whether their vaccine works. Uh, now, we understand that they haven't yet hit a first interim look at the data, essentially when they need a certain number of infections in the trial for their independent data monitoring committee to look in and see, is the vaccine working really well? Is it not working at all? Or should we just keep going? They haven't hit that point yet. He did say he expects they could hit that point soon. And after that, it would take about a week for them to do the analysis and have the information ready to report out to the public. So based on that math, we are talking about after the election. That's a week from today, and they haven't hit that point yet. So we're talking about after the election, potentially for them to communicate these results, and they will only communicate the results if they're conclusive, either really good or really bad. If it's just so-so, they're going to keep going and they probably won't communicate anything about the trial to us. Um, all of that said, they are still on the same timeline for potentially filing for an emergency use authorization because that will be based both on the efficacy of the vaccine and also on two months of safety follow-up, which they don't anticipate getting until the end of November. So that's what we're looking at for Pfizer. Now, of course, there's also headlines today about the potential immunity to COVID-19 based on a study in the UK of 365,000 people done by Imperial College looking at antibody presence over time. What they found was that it appeared to wane in the study. So there's a lot of questions about what does this mean for our immunity to this virus? And basically, it's just a big question mark right now. This virus has not been around for very long, and so um, we just don't know how long our immunity lasts. But virologists point out uh, we have other ways of having immunity to viruses than just having antibodies stick around for a long time. So more question marks. Kelly, back over to you. Yeah, and Meg, on the Pfizer issue, we spoke with an analyst yesterday who thinks their silence is a bad sign, potentially. Uh, but then I read some trader commentary this morning that thinks it's may be a very good sign. So no one, there's no consensus, I guess, on what this is telling us. And at the, at the same time, like you mentioned, now people are wondering what are the other options for um, immunity, so to speak, other than these vaccines we've been counting on? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly hoped that vaccines would elicit a stronger immune response uh, and, and stronger immunity, obviously, and longer lasting. But there's also the possibility that these will have to be annual vaccines um, that we'll take frequently because our immunity wears off. But, you know, we'll need to be out a year from uh, getting the vaccine to know how long that immunity lasts. So it's just something that takes time. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of back and forth about what this uh, timing means for Pfizer, but it's just impossible to guess until we see the data. Yeah. And for now, we wait. Meg, thank you so much. Meg Terrell with the latest updates for us. The gap is widening between consumers' current and future expectations about the economy. How could that impact the holiday retail season, and what does it typically mean for stocks? We will explore that coming up. Plus, should you chuck big tech as earnings loom this week, and should you start buying more cyclically exposed stocks? The case for pets and off-roading is coming up. That and a lot more ahead today on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. The conference board reporting its consumer confidence index dipped in October as COVID cases rise and Americans turn more cautious. Consumers did remain very optimistic about the current state of business and even labor, but their expectations for the future dimmed. Joining me now to discuss, Steve Odlin is president and CEO of the conference board and a CNBC contributor. Steve, it's good to see you again. And how big of a step back was this? Well, it wasn't a big one, honestly, Kelly. From we had a, Remember, we had a big step up last month. This one was just a, a few tenths off, so it, call it a, a flat index. But what did change are the expectations for the future versus the present among consumers, and both of those go into the index. People are a little nervous about what they're hearing with the COVID virus. They're learning that it's not going to go away anytime soon, which, and they're not getting the stimulus bill out of Congress, and so you're not going to get more PPP loans. You're not going to get more stimulus checks anytime soon. And so they're starting to get a little nervous here because that means that their jobs might be at risk as uh, companies might have to deal with layoffs. So you see some nervousness here um, among consumers. On the flip side, the conference board's CEO confidence index, you know, you always juxtapose consumers with the CEOs. The CEO confidence index spiked. And so you say, well, why is that going? Well, they're finally feeling like they've got some uh, handle on this thing. They, they've got some certainty as to where the virus is going. It doesn't look like it's getting worse. It does look like b business is rebounding and, and opening up again. Seventy percent of CEOs said that current economic conditions had improved. So you, you do see a difference here. One th issue is, what does this mean for the holidays? And if consumers are a little nervous about this, you know, uh, it could be right. a, you know, not a great holiday season, even though the Amazon Day was huge, you know, the, the Prime Day uh, and, and, of course, all the other retailers that participated. That was a huge event. So there is money out there. The question is whether consumers will part with it if they're feeling nervous about their jobs. Yeah, it's a great point. I think the connection between the two surveys is the labor market. I mean, again, even consumers are pretty optimistic about jobs being more plentiful to find. That said, the expectation index, that's the leading indicator. That's the one that the market watches. They don't like to see this this kind of pullback. So, you know, you know, I guess in there as well, which is something that Mike Santoli referenced a few uh, moments ago, was this pullback in their plans for buying cars, for instance, um, an area that had been really strong. What does that tell you? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, uh, it, it pulled back both on the used car market and the new car market, and, uh, and it was a drop-off. It pulled back in uh, capital goods, you know, like appliances and those kinds of things. Housing uh, expectations were relatively stable. So, you know, it does say that people are holding uh, discretionary cash here, and they're going to try to ride, you know, their capital goods longer. Interestingly, though, you have more people saying that they're going to take vacations, and how are they going to take the vacations? In their cars. So... <laughs> I, you know, it's a little bit interesting, but, uh, but I, I do think that uh, all of that comes together and says consumers are really nervous, which, you know, puts, you know, a big question on the holidays. Of course, in between now and then, we've got this little thing called an election. And typically, um, a consumer confidence index above 100 at this point 
suggests that it's good for the incumbent. But the Consumer Confidence Index this time is 100.9. So it's just barely wow. uh, above 100. <laughs> and so, therefore, what does that mean? You know, so you're not seeing, you're not seeing this great overwhelming surge here it, you know, that, that says that, uh, the, that the incumbent's in great shape. The final thing I'll say on that is that there were, if you look geographically, there were very large declines in the Consumer Confidence Index in the battleground states, especially Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Florida. Mm -hmm. And that's not good for uh, re-election, um, you know, in those, because those states are the drivers, right? Yeah. No, and that's, uh, we appreciate the granularity. And I think that's interesting on the index overall, 100.9. It's almost like it's as tight as this race appears to be, uh, giving us no more clarity on that front than anything else. Steve, thanks so much. Always highlighting the most important tidbits for us. Steve Odlin with Thank the you. conference board on today's uh, release. Still coming up, the proof is in the charts. We're going to get a technical take on the recent rotation to value and ask if the move is just a temporary shift. And it's the biggest IPO of all time. The biggest IPO ever. And investors can't get enough of it. We're live in Beijing with the details of the massive investor frenzy for Ant Group. Dow's down 107. We're back in two. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's check on markets about half past the hour. Dow's still down 77 points, but we're now positive on the S&P by three points. The Nasdaq's been higher today, up about 75 right now, right now. so a nice three-quarter of 1% gain. Some dispersion here that we haven't seen, especially after yesterday's broad-based sell-off. Let's check in on the sectors, and you'll see where the leadership is. Consumer discretionary technology, obviously. Utilities are up there as well today. Meanwhile, the laggards, industrials, and financials. So it definitely has a rotation pause feel to it still today. In terms of the movers, shares of Harley-Davidson are sharply higher after a big beat on the top and bottom line. Their profit improved from a year ago as they continue the turnaround effort there. The shares of Harley are up 25% today. Meanwhile, Chad the online education company is lower despite beating on earnings and revenue and raising its guidance. But analysts said there were high expectations going into earnings. The stock has more than doubled this year. It's down more than 9% today. And shares of Tiffany are higher. Sources telling our own David Faber that Tiffany and LVMH could be close to a revised takeover deal valued between 130 to 133 a share for Tiffany. Tiff's up 5% to about 129 today. Now, Chinese tech giant Ant Group is set to be the biggest IPO of all time, bigger than Saudi Aramco, bigger than Alibaba, the biggest ever. And demand has been so massive that the company is closing its order book in Hong Kong a day earlier than expected. Yunus Yun is live in Beijing with more for us. Yun, Yunus? 
<laughs> Thanks so much, Kelly. As you said, it's one day earlier, uh, a source close to the matter told me that the IPO is oversubscribed. Uh, they said that the book close for institutional investors in Hong Kong is going to be moved up to Wednesday instead of Thursday. Retail investors, though, can still subscribe until Friday. And subscribe they are. Everyone here is so excited about this IPO. One investor joked with me that, like ants, the demand for the IPO is is everywhere. So uh, brokerages in Hong Kong have been giving um, a, a, a lot of leverage to investors there. In fact, small-time investors have been buying stock with 20 times leverage. Investors have told me that middlemen are charging exorbitant uh, fees as well. For example, profit-sharing fees of 10% on trades in the first five days of listing. And then the lucky numbers around this IPO are just feeding the frenzy. Um, 688, or Liu Baba, is a homophone in Chinese for uh, smoothly make money. And as you could see, those numbers are all over the stock codes as well as the price. And so investors are being told now by their bankers that the listing is going to take place on November 5th. Kelly? Eunice, we've seen a few of these Chinese kind of, I don't want to call it stock bubbles, but big market run-ups over the last few years that the government sometimes comes in and tries to quash down. What are you hearing this time around? Well, I'm hearing that the uh, regulators here are concerned that on the one hand, you have Beijing, of course, wanting to make the point of, of really encouraging the buying and showing the U.S. that, uh, you know, we don't really need your, your U.S. markets anymore. We've arrived. And also to rally some national pride around what's seen as a homegrown champ. On the other hand, uh, there have been several investigations recently, um, as well as announcements of tighter regulations for finance-related businesses, which include Ant. And there's a new set that, of rules that come into place on November 1st. And all of this is likely a reminder to the investors across China that, you know, investing can be dangerous. There are risks. There are. Eunice, thank you so much. It's always interesting to get those geopolitical implications, too. Eunice Yoon live in Beijing for us tonight. Let's turn to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. The area around the Eiffel Tower was briefly evacuated after a bag filled with ammunition was found. The evacuation of the park near the Eiffel Tower is now over, but police are continuing to search the area around the Arc de Triomphe following a separate bomb threat incident earlier this morning. Italy's coronavirus outbreak continues to grow with another 22,000 cases being reported today, marking a new record daily case count for that country. The local health ministry also reported its highest COVID-related death toll since mid-May. It's a similar story in the United Kingdom. With 367 COVID deaths, that's the highest daily toll there since late May. With the election one week out, voting advocates are now advising absentee voters to drop their ballots off in person rather than mailing them with the U.S. Postal Service. That's because on-time deliveries for first-class mail has dropped in recent weeks. That's according to the latest data from the House Oversight Committee. You are up to date, Kel. That's the news update. Back to you.
Thank you very much, Sue. Coming up, there's a huge shift in stock ownership over the past few years. And that's good news for those expecting a tax-related sell-off if Biden wins, we'll explain. Plus, big beats, small returns. The market isn't rewarding companies for handsomely beating earnings expectations this quarter. Why? And what is it telling us about the market that's still ahead? Stocks are mixed today following yesterday's sell-off. My next guest says despite that drop, the S&P is setting up for continued strength into the end of the year. Let's bring in Frank Capilleri. He's desk strategist and chief market technician at Incinet. Frank, what gives you that confidence given all the uncertainty politically in particular that we might face? Uh, thanks for having me. When you look at the market, it's easy to say that it's up a lot or from low, but really it hasn't been parabolic the whole time. It's been a series of breakouts all about digestive phases, which will last for multiple weeks. If you look at the chart there, we see that those extensions have gotten longer. Those price ranges within the range have gotten wider. So we come to now, we're about seven weeks or so away from the last all-time high. So people think that's ominous. could be, but I think if we follow that same pattern, there's a good chance we have an upside resolution again. If that happens, I'll provide a good foundation to take advantage of the post-election market, which typically has positive seasonality in November, December, even in election years. Got it. So you're looking at the charts, uh, noting those patterns, but also saying that seasonally this time of year, election or no election tends to be pretty strong. Let me turn and ask you then about something that's going on within the market right now, this big debate over whether to rotate to choose your preferred term, rotate to value or rotate to cyclicals or rotate to, you know, transports and industrials. Um, you know, bottom line, especially as big tech earnings approach right now, do you think we're going to have this change in leadership here? What do you see in the charts? Well, we had a change of leadership really throughout the whole year. So there's one chart we have showing equal weight RSP ETF of the S&P 500 versus large cap version of the S&P 500 itself. So basically, this is looking at sectors other than technology compared to technology. So when that chart's moving up, value in other areas is better. When it's down, you have technology. By my count, there's 17 different shifts of rotation over 32 weeks since the March low. That just shows you that things have been doing well. And another thing to tell you that is that the RSP and S&P 500 are both up 48% from the Marshall Oaks. So really, it's been about all these stocks moving, maybe not in unison, but taking turns, which has given us the uptrend that we have now. Got it. So it's better better to bet on the whole market uh, than to try to figure out who's going to be leading at any one time is maybe the message there. Frank, thanks so much. We appreciate it today. Frank Capilleri walking through some of the charts for us. Still ahead, two casino operators are placing very different bets on Las Vegas recovery. We have those details next. Welcome back. It is a tale of two casino stories today. Las Vegas Sands may be looking to eliminate its footprint in Las Vegas, while another hotel and casino operator is doing the very opposite. Contessa Brewer joins us with more. Contessa? Hi, Kelly. A brand new billion dollar casino opening its doors to the public tomorrow amid a pandemic with Las Vegas fighting to regain its footing. But the owners of the new Circa are confident their brand new downtown property will be a draw. A three story sports book, they say the biggest in the world. 
Stadium Pool. It's a new twist on this Vegas pool party focusing on sports with outdoor screens, climate control to be open year round. Still, rising COVID infections around the country are a concern. We certainly are worried about, about what's, uh, what's transpired in the last seven days, but, uh, but we, we also know that we have to stay ahead of it and, uh, and, and, and adapt to the changes. Derek Stevens tells me all the water cooler talk in town today, though, is about Las Vegas Sands, potentially selling off its Las Vegas property, the Venetian Palazzo Sands Expo. The company confirmed to me early discussions, but say nothing has been finalized. Sands gets more than 90% of its profits from Macau and Singapore. The number that's been floating here, $6 billion for the Las Vegas property. It's a lot of money in a town with stiff competition and struggling business. Any buyer likely would be taking a long view here, Kelly, which perhaps means private equity in conjunction with a gaming REIT, but Sands won't say. Contessa, it's also interesting to me that, that Sands would offload those at this time. It suggests desperation, right? Because why would you sell uh, an asset whose value is diminished at the worst possible time to sell it? So again, I don't know what that maybe tells us about what's going on at the company, but who might those, I mean, you mentioned private equity, any other kind of obvious players who would be eyeing uh, these assets? It could be anybody for whom uh, the real attraction is cheap money. I mean, you can get uh, cash right now to do a big deal like this, and the cost is relatively inexpensive. But you've got to wonder about the competition, because remember, Resorts World is going to open up here as well. You have to wonder about tax changes coming, if there's a change in leadership in Washington, D.C. And don't forget, those all-important Chinese gamblers are not in Las Vegas right now. When they come back, if they come back is a big question. The, uh, the, the thing that Sands has is all of this convention and business space, and they say they can't get back to where they were until convention and business returns. But Sheldon Adelson, Kelly's really, he's bullish on it. Yeah. Contessa, we appreciate it. Thank you for bringing us the, that double update today uh, on the prospects of yeah. Las Vegas. Contessa Brewer with the latest for us. Let's talk some online shopping before we go. Shares of Shopify are jumping today after the company says it will partner with TikTok to help its million-plus merchants more easily advertise on the platform. Shopify saying the partnership will allow merchants to sell product in the form of shoppable video ads where TikTok users can click on an ad to buy the product. The two companies said they will, quote, collaborate to test new commerce features over the coming months. Still a reminder that as TikTok faces an uncertain future here in the U.S., a key U.S. online retail platform is plowing forward with this partnership. Shopify shares are up 3.4 percent. And before we go, let's do a quick check of markets. Take a look at some of the big tech names, the FANG names in the NASDAQ right now. NASDAQ has been the leadership all day. It's now up three quarters of one percent. Twitter up more than five percent. Facebook up about two and a half percent. All of these names near session highs. We did get some testimony that we expect to hear from Jack Dorsey on the Hill tomorrow. Coincidence or not, uh, the shares are totally shrugging it off. We'll have a whole lot more on Power Lunch. Stick around for that. That does it for us here on The Exchange today. Next hour, we talk Microsoft. They report earnings after the bell today, and we'll get you the key numbers to watch. I'll join Tyler Matheson after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 